Keeping It With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure, is brought to you by TKM Incorporated. This company located in Moss, Tennessee, specializes in erosion control, hydro-seeding, hydro-mulch, silt fence. They do minor excavation work, and they also provide traffic control and construction signs. Their mission is keeping people safe. Their passion is wishing that all men could be saved. TKM stands for The King's Men. If you'd like to contact The King's Men, you can contact them at 931-243-3958. 931-243-3958. Or you may email them at tkminc2001 at twlakes.net. That is tkminc2001 at twlakes.net. The King's Men in partnership with Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. SJL General Contractor is a full construction company that primarily focuses on civil construction and asphalt sales in the Huntsville and Fayetteville regions. Services they provide include, but are not limited to, road construction, asphalt material, underground utilities, site work, and demolition. They employ heavy equipment operators, concrete finishers, pipe layers, and CDL dump truck drivers. If you would like for this company to work for you on your project, or if you'd like to work for them as an employee of this family-owned business, you can contact them at 931-433-4660. That is 931-433-4660. Or three W's and a dot sjnl.com. That's www.sjnl.com. SJNL General Contractor is a sponsor of Keeping Up With Jones. Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. In 1979, 1980, if somebody walked up to you in the hall of Oxford High School and said, I'm going to run for student government, would you be my campaign manager? What that meant was they thought you could draw. You didn't have to have any political acumen. You didn't have to be savvy. You didn't have to be popular. You just had to be able to make posters. And I can proudly say that of all the campaigns I've been involved in, I've, I've won all of them except the time I ran for office. And, and we'll get to that. I ran for police lieutenant on student government day. Uh, my two friends and I advertised under the idea of Magnum Force, the old Clint Eastwood movie with the three motorcycle cops who are out murdering bad guys. And that's what we called ourselves. And, uh, Greg and I got elected to the police lieutenantship, and as part of my job as a one-day police lieutenant, we got to go down to the city hall and participate in some uh, student government and youth government activities, and we got to arrest two people. We rolled up in a squad car, bounced out, and quote-unquote served a warrant on the high school principal, LaVon Higgins, and also arrested uh, Dr. Mally Long, the infamous algebra teacher that made my blood run cold when I was unprepared for her class. You have to remember the dynamic in Miss Long's class was my grades were inversely affected by a lady named Marcia Carter. The closer Miss Carter sat to me, the lower my grades were. The further away she sat, the higher my grades were. But on this occasion, this gentleman walked up to me, a, a rather large individual, exceptionally large for high school, 
but he never played athletics. He didn't play football. He didn't play basketball. He didn't wrestle. His name was Keith Owens. He was the closest closest thing we had in high school to a mafia don. I think he wanted to grow up and be a gangster. And we weren't friends. But we weren't enemies either. Looking back, I would describe our relationship as the, the relationship between Herod Antipas and John the Baptizer. Although Herod had placed John in prison, the Bible says that Herod liked him, feared him, thought he was a just man and a holy man, and he listened to him often, and depending on the translation you read, he did many things. Uh, Mr. Owens and I had many conversations about morality, about what I believed and why I believed it and why I said I wouldn't do certain things that he thought were normal activities for teenage boys. I remember standing in the pulpit at age 17 or 18 and, and preaching at the Bedview Hills congregation. And when I stood up to speak on a Sunday night in the very last pew on the very outside corner, sat Mr. Owens. And at the time, I thought he was laughing at me. But on retrospect, I think he was just smiling because he'd never heard me preach before. So he walks up before me and he says, I want to be the next student council president. I want you to be my campaign manager. I said, Keith, look, you, you, you know, we didn't even use the words then, but you're, you're a dumpster fire. You're a train wreck. How, how am I going to align myself with you and you pull some of the shenanigans you pull, and especially using the student government as, as your vehicle? You, you've got to make me a promise. You've got to promise that if you get this position, you will work hard for the betterment of the students at Oxford High School. You'll do some improvements for the school. You'll do some things. And and, and he gave me this promise. He quote-unquote, swore to me that he would do what's right. In addition to drawing the posters, it became to my attention that the campaign manager and the person running for office had to make speeches. And so the entire student body was assembled, and I got up to make my speech for my guy. I told the story of David Lachik. David was a boy born with a cerebral palsy or some kind of birth defect, and his parents refused to accept that and began to physically train him. And I described with excruciating detail Mr. Lopchik doing his very first single push-up and that he later on went to be a bodybuilding champion and earning the title of Mr. Manitoba. And the reason he overcame this adversity and the reason he was able to do these great things was because he had a work ethic and he put in hard work. And I said, when I was asked by Keith Owens, to be his campaign manager, the one question I asked him was, do you promise to work as hard as you can for the students of Oxford, Alabama? And Keith Owens said, yes. And I offer you today as candidate for the presidency of the Student Council Association, Mr. Keith Owens, with his promise to work hard. And I sat down. I, another guy was running for president, and his campaign manager got up and tried to be funny and make a smart remark that he didn't have a story to tell about somebody's quote-unquote retarded little brother. And the student body didn't laugh. His popularity and his smoothness didn't go over well. And then Keith stood up to make his speech. He was wearing a gray pinstripe suit, a fedora with a red carnation. He looked like a mafia don. And my heart was in my chest and in my throat, and he stepped to the podium. And he said, everybody in this room, everybody in this room knows Jones doesn't lie. And Jones said, I work hard. And he don't lie. 
And he sat down. That was his speech. The unexpected results of that election was that Keith Owens won. And I sat there dumbfounded because the better part of my sophomore and junior year, Keith didn't agree with my philosophy of life. He didn't agree with my morals. He didn't agree with my integrity. He often asked questions from an incredulous point of view and would challenge the stances I had about morality and different things. He couldn't believe I'd never had a drink. He couldn't believe I'd never smoked. And he couldn't believe my choices for the things I did and didn't do with girls. And I thought he, I thought he tolerated me but that day in front of every student in, in, in the building, he told everybody that he believed I was a person of honor and a person of integrity, and he would base his entire campaign on the simple statement, everybody here knows Jones doesn't lie. I, I was overwhelmed with the burden of influence. And, and from that young time... I was really careful to guard my influence because I had no idea the effect or the presence or the power of it. I was a goofy kid trying to figure out life. But this worldly person could base his campaign on my integrity, and that, that was an unexpected result. I got to Harding University and did some more campaigns for some people. I drew some things and was prolific with my airbrush. I saved up my graduation money and bought an airbrush and a compressor. I still have the compressor, and it still runs. And I advertised and drew posters for people's campaigns. And then finally, I decided that, that I could probably be a president of the Student Government Association. I, the, the past presidents had asked me to serve on committees. I was the spiritual life director and was in charge of a, a campus-wide devotional. Got to speak at it often, got to pick the speakers, and, and, and was involved in some things with the student government, although that wasn't a thing that I aspired to. I decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to run for president. And I drew my own posters. I was my own campaign manager. I airbrushed posters, and I drew posters, and I painted posters, and I climbed on things I shouldn't climb on and hung posters. And the day came to make speeches, and I did the David Lopchick speech. My best friend and his girlfriend said it was too dramatic, and that it was probably not going to be well for me in the elections. There were five different guys running for student council president, and when the votes came in, I led the pack by 268 votes. But according to the rules of Harding University, when your pool has more than three or four candidates and you don't get an X percentage of the vote, then there's a runoff between the next guy. Well, the next guy was 268 votes minimum behind me, and his name is Mike Stewart. And I've never talked about this ever. This is the first time this story's ever been publicly told unless Mike tells it. We go into this runoff period. I had a different philosophy about the position than Mike did. And I'll just have to, you know, just tell you that on the day the results came in and there was a runoff election and they called us into the SGA office and they said the results are here and we've counted and we've recounted the votes and the difference between the votes is seven votes. Lonnie, you lost by seven votes. 
Now, let's just be honest, Mike out-campaigned me. After the initial election, I sat back and said, this is going to happen or it's not going to happen. And and if people want me to be their president, they will elect me. I'm not going to beg for it. Mike wanted to be the president more than I did, and, and he out-campaigned me. He was out every day. He was passing out flyers. He was talking to people. And I can tell you 20 people came up to me in the lunchroom and in the cafeteria and said, hey, I was going to vote for you, but I just didn't vote. I, I, I know I counted 20 that said that. But the results were in, and they were tallied, and they were immutable, and there wasn't a, a chance for a runoff. And I lost the only election I ever ran in for the position of president, and I lost it by seven votes. I left campus that afternoon and went to B-Rock, the highest place in Searcy, Arkansas, a place that I have stood on and given devotionals. I've sat with people on picnics, and I've repelled off of it multiple times and even climbed parts of it. And I went out to high. I've always been drawn to high ground. Uh, Jackie likes to go to the ocean. Jackie likes to be around water to settle her spirit. My spirit is drawn to high places. And I went out, and I sat on that rock. And I prayed about it, and I made peace with it, and I accepted it, and I went back to school. Now, as things turned out, the spring semester of that election year, the church in Salem, Arkansas, lost their preacher. And I was contacted by their leadership, and they asked me to to come there every Sunday until school was out and preach for them. And had I been the student council president, I would have been uh, unable to accept that invitation because student council presidents spend a lot of weekends at school because you're involved in student activities and student entertainment and, and student projects and the movie of the week and, and all those kind of things. And, and it worked out okay. And I'm not doing sour grapes and I'm not trying to make you think that there was some great plan on my part. I ended up preaching at Salem for the last six weeks of the semester. The summer went through. I got back to school and they said, well, we didn't hire a guy this summer. We just kind of made do. We want you to come back. And then when you graduate, we just want you to move here and be our pulpit minister. And it turned out that I was preaching for the Ferguson Street Church, and there was another church in town called the Downtown Church, and some 20-something years ago, they'd had some kind of a riff, and there were two churches of Christ in a town of 1,700 people. And through some efforts that I was involved in, those two churches merged back, and, and for those few months that I lived in Salem, Arkansas, I was the preacher for the largest church in northern Arkansas, yeah. My only job ever as a pulpit minister, uh, my denominational friends uh, from the, 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 the Protestant group would call me a pastor. That's not an accurate term biblically, but that's I was the head minister. And I preached Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesdays and taught adult Bible classes and taught Wednesday night classes and taught teen classes and ran the youth program and went to breakfast with the mayor and the sheriff and the city council and was involved in things with the school board. And I was, if you can picture a 21-year-old pulpit minister, that's what I was. And the result was because I had lost the election. I didn't know that having lost the election on that day. So I was being introspective. I was trying to sort out how to handle this loss. What I had did you know, what I had done wrong, what was wrong with me, should I have came campaigned more, 
Should I have begged people for their votes? Lots of those things go through your head when you're 19 or 20 years old. And then I was in Greek class. Now, if you're a nursing major, you have to pass the boards. If you're an architect, you have to press pre-architecture stuff. If you're going to be a medical student, you've got to pass the the medical boards and get into the to medical school. If you've got a, a, a an aspiring law degree, you've got to go through the things that get you into law school. Uh, if you're a, a, an accountant, accounting major, you have to pass a CPA exam. Well, if you're a Bible major at Harding University and you can pass Greek, if you can make a D in Greek, they'll turn you loose to preach on, for the brotherhood. I, I complained about that. I said, you know, everybody else in, in this school has to reach some benchmark, has to have some gatekeeper. And our gatekeepers to make a D in Greek? Now, Greek's an intimidating language for me. I had aspired at one point in my life to travel the world and be a missionary, but one of my deal breakers for missionary work was if I don't if I can't speak the language I'm not going to go to that country well my two years of French proved to me that I did not have a gift for languages in my first semester in Greek absolutely proved with with concrete assurity that I do not have a gift for languages our Greek professor was Dr. Jack McKinney Jack spoke Greek like a native. He read Koine Greek. He preached out of a Greek Bible. He was actually the minister in Wheeling, Arkansas, about 15 miles down the road from Salem, and we often were preaching at the same time. This guy with a with a doctorate in Greek and me, who didn't even have a degree from Harding yet, and I was in his Greek class, and I'll never forget the first day that we were there. He's going down the roll, and he calls out in his clipped, perfect diction, Lonnie. Buster Jones. What would you like to be called, sir? Sir, everybody here calls me Lonzo. I will call you Lonnie. And that was the relationship I had with Dr. McKinney. And he was an amazing teacher. He was an amazing student of the Greek language. The Bible uh, in the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. It's not a formal Greek. Uh, It's kind of a common language, a, a, a a southern version, if you will, of Greek, and it's, it, it's a, you need a third grade reading level to understand it. So when you read your Bible and you think it's a complicated book, no, if you get a modern speech translation and you read it at the third grade level, you should be able to understand Scripture. But this was not about understanding Scripture. This was about parsing Greek verbs. This is about understanding the the case endings and how to deal with the aorist participles and it was overwhelming and over my head, and, and I was struggling. And of course, you know, I'm this campus guy who's repelled off the buildings and had a Captain America costume and a Spider-Man costume, and I was accused by Dr. Gannis of repelling into the Heritage Cafeteria to steal the silverware, and when they called me to Dr. Gannis's office, I said, sir, how do you know they repelled in? He said, well, they left scuff marks on the on the the wall where they opened the ceiling tiles. I said, sir, in all honesty, if it had been me, would I left scuff marks? He leaned back in that big president's chair and said, Lonzo, your reputation precedes you. You may go. So this is, this is the kid that's in Dr. McKinney's class. And I'm, I'm miserable at Greek. I'm, I'm, you know, I asked him, I said, Dr. McKinney, if I get a lexicon and a parsing guide, 
can't I do all the things I need to do with the Greek language and not have to memorize all this stuff? He goes, I'm assuming that one point in your career, Mr. Jones, you'll end up on a desert island with nothing but the Greek manuscript, and you'll need to start a church there. And so he was going to prepare us to, to do that, and I wasn't going to be prepared. I, I don't have a gift for languages. There's some things I don't do well academically. I, I'm not a very good math student. Uh, my daughter has a learning disability, and in my quiet moments, I think that, that some of the learning difficulties she had, she inherited from me. Now, when I get something, I get it. When I understand something, I understand it on an intuitive level. But when I don't understand it, I don't understand it, and it's a brick wall, and you might as well be speaking Greek to me. Well, I was in this Greek class, and, and I thought Dr. McKinney, well, I thought Dr. McKinney thought I was a moron. I was this goofy kid who was kind of popular in school, and I would come to class and not have the right answers and would struggle to pass the test. I was going to pass Greek, but I wasn't going to pass Greek with flying colors, and I wasn't going to be a Greek scholar. At the end of class that day, he said, Mr. Jones, would you come by my office this afternoon? In my heart sank. You know, this is a guy that I said, well, Dr. McKinney, there's some controversial things being talked about in, in the brotherhood circles and in scholarly things, and we're debating these doctrinal positions. What do you believe? He said, Mr. Jones, that's why you're studying Greek, so you can understand these things for yourself. And when you make your decision, you'll be quoting the Bible and not me. That's the kind of guy he was. That's the kind of answers he would give. And so later that afternoon, I walked over to the Bible building, and incidentally, I was the janitor in the Bible building. I was the guy who, after the classes were let go, I went in and swept the floors and mopped the floors and dusted the blinds and ran the buffer down in the Bible chair's office. So I walked in to this building where I was the janitor, and I walked upstairs to where the Bible offices were, and I walked down the hall, and I found the door label for Dr. McKinney, and I lightly tapped on the door and he said, enter. And I walked in. And he steepled his fingers on the desk. And, and I'm getting ready for him to say, you know, you're not getting Greek. And you might want to think about another career. I realize that you're trying to double major in Bible and art. Maybe you should put your efforts there. But he steepled his fingers together and he looked at me and he said, Lonnie, I believe the students have cheated themselves today in selecting their leadership. And, 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 and that's all he said. He didn't follow up. He didn't elaborate. He said that to this stunned, stupid kid. And it was more shocking than what Keith Owens said. And I walked out of that office. Number one recognizing that that election didn't define me. And I realized that my scholarship didn't define me. And, and I would have thought that in order to be approved by Dr. McKinney, I'd, I'd, I'd need to be a good Greek student. And I admired this guy. I feared this guy. I would draw cartoons and he would be Darth Vader, you know, hacking up our grades. He was intimidating and he was inspiring. And 
I would not have said that we were friends. I was a student. He was a teacher. He was a good teacher. I was a bad student. But I stood there in his office, and his evaluation of me was not based on my skills with the Greek language. They weren't based on my academics. This learned, wizened, venerated professor saw something in me that I did not see in myself and was unaware of. And those words allowed me to go and do different things in different ways. And I learned, and I had been learning it, but that day I learned it's not your athletic prowess, it's not your academic acumen, it's not your ability to draw or sing or write or play music or paint or... There's an evaluation that isn't marked on a set of skills. There's an evaluation that people give you that go way beyond the superficial stuff that, that we think about. Now, I'm trying not to make this sound like a bragging session on me. I'm bragging on Dr. McKinney. I, I, was, I was utterly stunned that he would say those words to any student in his high lofty professorship position. And I was absolutely unprepared. He would say those words to me. Don't judge yourself by your perception of other people's expectations. Don't evaluate yourself based on what you think others think about you. Find somebody in your life who's a mentor. Find somebody in your life who's a leader. Find somebody in your life who's a partner. Find somebody who will be brutally honest with you and, and tell you. Tell you the truth about what they think you are. And if, and if this is a good source and it's people you can trust and it's someone you admire, that's a much better evaluation of yourself than re the results of a test. Whether it's an athletic test, an academic test, an emotional test, or, or some kind of a contest. And if you're trying to get people's votes, stop trying to get their votes. Stop campaigning. Just be simple. Be uncomplicated. Be genuine. Be authentic. And you might end up with unexpected election results. Keeping up with Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. I'm your host, Lonnie Jones. And the adventure part is basically just our experiences. And some of those experiences are as mundane as 
growing up, being married, being a young married couple with a kid or being a middle-aged couple with grandkids. Some of the experiences will be my adventures as an outdoorsman, a rock climber, a fisherman, a hunter, or my experiences as a police chaplain who's been assigned to a SWAT team for over 30 years. Some of that adventure may even boil down to the idea that there's a belief that I'm a chaotic Jedi. (laughs) Either way, we'll take the experiences or the adventures and we'll talk about the facts. The facts will lead to concepts and the concepts lead to application. Basically, it will be anecdotal wisdom. One cautionary word about the facts is we will tell you the facts just as they happened, but sometimes we'll tell you the facts the way we remember them happening, and sometimes we'll tell you the facts the way we've heard other people tell us the way they remember them happening. In any occasion, it's not an attempt to deceive. There'll be a little bit of embellishment, and it's an all good, clean fun and for learning purposes only. Thank you for keeping up with Jones. Jones.